This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. Today we'll be talking about Mapusaurus, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. Before we get into the news, just want to say thank you to all our patrons on Patreon. We're at the end of the month, so we want to give a special shout out to our patrons who have pledged at the $5 level. So big thanks to Nicholas, Chris, Kyle, and Betsy. We really appreciate you and, of course, all of our other patrons and the support. And we're really excited with how everything's going. So we hope that you continue to enjoy our podcast. And for all our other listeners out there, if you want to support us, then please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. First in the news is an article titled, A High-Latitude Dromaeosaurid Boreonchius Certecorum of Theropoda from the Upper Campanian Wapiti Formation in West Central Alberta. It was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, which is open access, so we like that. And it was written by Phil R. Bell and Philip J. Curry, who we talk about all the time. It's named Boreonchius after the boreal forest, which is the type of forest that covers most of Canada, and Anikos, which means claw in Greek. Its specific name, Certecorum, pays tribute to Certec heating solutions <laughs> and the Berendrecht family who live in Alberta and give a lot of support to the paleontology community in the Peace region. So Boreonchius was discovered in the Wapiti Formation, which is near the city of Grand Prairie in central western Alberta, Canada. At the time Boreonchius was alive, it was relatively close to the western interior seaway that split North America in half during the Cretaceous. And not surprisingly, it lived in the late Cretaceous at about 73 to 74 million years ago. It is a bit unusual to find Romaeosaurids so far north or south, and thus the high latitude part of the title. Canada was still pretty far north back then, although it is farther north now than it was back then. According to the abstract, quote, a phylogenetic analysis recovers Boreonchius certecorum as a derived eodromaeosaur, possibly within Velociraptorinae, end quote. But they don't put it inside Dromaeosaurinae. Instead, they put it as more closely related to some of the Asian Velociraptorines. They found the fossils mixed in with a few Pachyrhinosaurus bones, which are already known to have been in the area. They found part of the skull, some of the claws, a vertebra, and some teeth. So overall, not even close to a full skeleton. Luckily, the skull shows them some unique features, and they found the characteristic Dromaeosaurid curved claw, 
In this case, it is about 39 millimeters or one and a half inches long. And that's along the outer curvature of the claw because, you know, the dromaeosaurids have those sickly hooked claws. They estimated that it was about two meters long, and that's pretty common for a dromaeosaurid. It's about the same size as a velociraptor, for instance. Because its closest relative appears to have been from Mongolia, this find can be used as further evidence for a land bridge connecting northern Asia and North America, which is something we've been talking about a lot lately. So, pretty cool. Another gap in the dromaeosaurid or velociraptorine family. Yeah, they're an interesting group. Next in the news is some information about the Chicxulub impactor. We've been talking about it a lot lately with that new group that's going out to drill into the peak ring. But this group was much farther away from the actual impact site. So Herman D. Bermudez and colleagues went to the Colombian island Gorgonia, which is about 20 miles off the coast of Colombia in the Pacific Ocean, and they found evidence of the Chicxulub impactor there. Basically, on a beach, they found a slice of sandstone that was from the time of the impact, and it was filled with hundreds of little glass pieces. Most of them look like little tiny marbles that were created at the same time as the Chicxulub crater. Technically, most of them are called microtectites, which is a name for little pieces mostly of glass or other really low water content materials that are formed when an impactor hits the earth and it, you know, melts and flings things all over the place. So they're usually spherical, and I guess it must solidify either while flying through the air or when it hits liquid or something like that. In this case, it was probably flying through the air because at the time, they think the island was about 2,700 to 3,000 kilometers from the impact site. So it would have been in the air for quite a while. And it's currently about 2,400 kilometers or 1,500 miles away from the Chicxulub impact site. So they think that the spheres are in such good shape, you know, they all really do just look like little tiny glass marbles all over the place. Because the island was underwater at the time, and so they might have gotten a little bit buried and then not shifted all over the place during the tsunamis that moved a lot of the other stuff around that was on land. And since this is the first discovery from South America, it gives us a better idea of how far these spherules made it from the impact. And it means that there was molten glass just flying everywhere, thousands of kilometers, over a thousand miles. Pretty crazy. Next in the news, there was a Corythosaurus skull that was found in the Judith River Formation. And Corythosaurus is one of those hadrosaurs that had a big crest on its head. In this case, it had a tall, round crest right above its eyes. And according to Jared Hudson in an interview, this is the first specimen to be found south of the Canadian border. And even though all the other ones were found in Canada, this one was found in northern Montana, so it's really not too far from the others that were found. The Dinosaur Resource Center from Colorado... CT scanned the skull before starting restoration because they didn't want to disturb it in any way before getting the copy made. And they're hoping to get some information about the brain case from the scans, as well as a nice external 3D model. So that's pretty cool. 
Next up on experiment.com, a group of scientists, specifically Jessica Lippincott, Dean Lomax, Bill Wall, Shot Hartman, and Dave Lovelace, successfully crowdfunded over $4,000 so they could write a paper describing, quote, the skeletal anatomy and phylogeny of one of the earliest manoraptoran dinosaurs of North America, end quote. The fossils they'll be examining are of a small dinosaur from the late Jurassic that was found in Wyoming. And the goal of the paper is to help figure out more about the ancestors of birds. Quote, our new species suggests that the ancestors of birds occupied a larger range of sizes and habitats, which will provide a broader understanding of what the ancestors of birds were doing in the Jurassic. End quote. So, cool idea for a paper. And also, I didn't even realize that scientists were crowdfunding to write their papers. Yeah, it might be a good way to get more papers in open access or something if you can crowdfund them. Yeah, it could be. I heard not specifically for paleontology papers. I forget what field of science. Some scientists now are just posting their papers on places where people can access it for free before it gets peer reviewed mm. to keep it more open. It's kind of a defiant thing. <laughs> That's interesting. The information I got about those glass spherules by Columbia was on a place called academia.edu. And I guess somebody posted their slides there and they post a lot of stuff too. It looks like it's mostly open access. Next, in North Carolina, a nine-year-old girl got to help decide how a dinosaur in a new exhibit at the aquarium at Fort Fisher looked which is pretty awesome. She chose the colors of one of the dinosaurs in the exhibit. It's a fish-eating dinosaur. The article we found doesn't say which type of dinosaur specifically, but it's got camouflage colors so that it can blend in with the swamp that it lived in. Cool. Yeah, and I think that might have been part of a dinosaur color contest they're holding, but that was unclear in the article. Next in the news, a Washington Post article has two new videos in a 3D walkthrough around some of the Smithsonian dinosaurs. And the 3D walkthrough shows the T-Rex, which was the centerpiece before they started the reconstruction phase at the Smithsonian Institute. And they've now positioned that T-Rex so that it's chomping on the frill of a triceratops and kind of standing on it with one foot. It's really cool. You can click through it and look all over the place in different angles and see all around the T-Rex and the Triceratops. And then in the background, there's an Edmontosaurus and a Thessalosaurus, which are also mounted. There's also a video in the article where they show that some of the fossils were never actually completely removed from the stone and dirt around them. So they've been going through the process of completely excavating those last steps, and it's still in progress. They've spent quite a few months on it already, and maybe that's why it's going to take until 2019 to complete all the work and get everything mounted and everything. I'm not sure. They have another video where they show a lot of the work being done, and in it they do a CT scan of the T-Rex's brain case, which is pretty big. I'm surprised at how big it was. It barely fit in the CT scanner. All of the fossils are being prepared and arranged at Research Casting International in Trenton, Ontario, Canada, which I thought was kind of interesting that they shipped them out of the country since it's like the national T-Rex, they keep calling it. It's like, whose nation? Maybe it's an international T-Rex now. <laughs> the walkthrough is really fun to click through, so I definitely recommend going to this article that we'll post a link to and they say that pretty soon they're going to take those T-Rex and Triceratops and other 
hadrosaur fossils and take them apart so that they have room for the next set so that they can lay out how they want the museum to look. Cool. And speaking of museums, on March 25th, by the time we release this podcast, it will have passed. But if you were in London on Friday, March 25th, we hope you got a chance to visit the Natural History Museum. They had this late night series that featured an after dark dinosaur theme. You had to be 18 or older and you'd be able to, quote, discover the process of reconstructing a dinosaur from unearthing bones to creating lifelike skin, end quote. And they also screened Jurassic Park, quote, after experts discussed what the movie got right and wrong about discovering dinosaurs. So seems like it would have been a fun Friday night. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Speaking of what they got right and wrong in Jurassic Park, <laughs> Jack Horner just did an interview where he talks about a couple of the differences between the Jurassic Park movies and the scientific consensus about how dinosaurs acted or looked. And he talked about a lot of things that we've discussed before on the podcast, like missing feathers, imaginary DNA, and necessary compromises that were made. But he mentioned a couple of things that I'm not sure if we've talked about. So first, there was the statement about how dinosaurs probably didn't growl. And he said that maybe they would have just sang like birds, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. I think we mentioned that they might have chirped, but thinking of them as like singing like an oriole or something. Hmm. I don't know what kind of birds sing. <laughs> and second, he mentioned that T-Rex definitely would have beaten Spinosaurus in a fight. When we talked to him, he said that he had a big part in the plot of Jurassic Park 3. And in this interview, he says that he encouraged them to use Spinosaurus because he was getting tired of T-Rex. But, quote, T-Rex has a 12,000 pound or 54, 40 kilogram bite force. He doesn't eat fish. He crushes bones, end quote. <laughs> so T-Rex would have won for sure. And there's more and more evidence pointing towards Spinosaurus kind of being like a crocodile and that it stayed in the water and ate fish. So if the fight took place in water, maybe it would have won. Yeah, but it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we even talked about it. We're not even really sure if it would have been on all fours or if it would have been on two legs. If it was on all fours, its head would have been so low that it would have been hard to fight anything tall at all on land. And going along with Jurassic Park, kind of, this next item is about Jurassic World. Actually, Jurassic World 2. People are already starting to speculate on what we can expect to see. Apparently, Colin Trevorrow, who directed Jurassic World, said that Jurassic World was inspired by something Ian Malcolm said in Jurassic Park. It's this quote, where he said, you stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you want to sell it. Which is, actually, you can see exactly how that was applied to Jurassic World, with the making the bigger and crazier dinosaurs, packaging yep. it, and all the merchandising. <laughs> yep, all of that. Jurassic World 2, though, is inspired by a different quote. It's, Quote, dinosaurs and man separated by 65 million years of evolution have been thrown back into the mix together. How can we know what to expect? So that leaves it, I think, a little bit more open-ended. Yeah, it could be like we were hoping that there's just going to be dinosaurs all over the place being made by different groups. Yeah. Then there'd be a lot of dinosaur-man interactions. A lot of chaos, I'm sure. That'd be fun. <laughs> And there's a 3D model of Jurassic World that just became available online. 
According to their website, it's not intended to be a game, but rather a way for fans to explore the island and the Jurassic World attractions. It's version 0.1, and it's called the Jurassic World 3D Project. It reminds me of some similar projects to recreate the spaceships from Star Trek and the regular ship in Titanic. <laughs> so, it, you know, just kind of like, oh, what if I could be there? And you could go through the different hallways and the different levels of the ship or whatever. It seems like a pretty similar thing to that, or a pretty similar concept. It looks like they've already finished the Mosasaur, and they're planning on releasing updates on the first of every month with, quote, new features, dinosaurs, 3D models, places to explore, and more, end quote. It definitely looks like a very early iteration. There's a lot of monochromatic textures where, like, all the streets are just one color of gray. It's not like a fancy, you know, asphalt texture or anything like that. It's pretty simple, but it does have everything to scale. So if you wanted to know what it would be like to be there, this is probably your best option. And it's available for download on their site and has versions for Mac and PC. In Queensland, Australia, there is a new museum that recently opened up called Eromanga's Natural History Museum. The museum exhibits Australian dinosaurs and megafauna, which means animals that were around millions of years after dinosaurs. And though the museum just opened, it's been in the works for the past 12 years. Back in 2004, the operations and collections manager, Robin McKenzie, specifically her son, Sandy, who was 14 at the time, found a megafauna bone while he was biking. This bone is 90 to 95 million years old. The museum just got government funding last year. It cost around $800,000 to build, and it's apparently already attracting a lot of visitors. So more and more stuff to see in Australia, yeah, dinosaur-wise. Yeah, stuff now. Yeah. Especially for a country that doesn't have too many dinosaurs discovered. Well, yet. I think they expect to find more because they're getting more resources, more people that interested. Yeah. yeah. There have been quite a few recently. Yeah. In another part of the world, the Yangam Goseong Dinosaur World Expo in South Korea will open on April 1st for 73 days, and it's going to include life-size dinosaur replicas. Organizers are expecting 1.8 million visitors who will be able to see hologram videos of dinosaurs in 3D, 4D, and 5D on a 360-degree screen. They got to rate it in on the number of Ds. <laughs> I don't even know what 5D is. They always use, like, well, it sprays water on you and it blows air at you. So now it's 5Ds. It's like, that's not dimension, people. Uh -oh. It's just a thing that happens while you're looking at a 3D thing. Well, I wonder what their version is then. Yeah. So there's also going to be light and laser shows at night. And dinosaurs on display will include T-Rex, Triceratops, Brachiosaurus, and Stegosaurus. So big favorites. Yep. And the city in South Korea Goseong is one of the three largest dinosaur footprint sites in the world. The other two are in Colorado and Argentina. And this site has over 1,900 footprints on a 3.7-mile, 6-kilometer stretch of rock bed from the mid-Cretaceous. Nice. Mm-hmm. Next, we heard about another great dinosaur prank. This time it was two radio hosts, Hamish and Andy. They scared their co-workers in a parking garage by setting a man in a velociraptor suit loose on them. One person apparently peed their pants a little bit, and they call it the Jurassic Car Park Prank. I think they borrowed the outfit from the Jurassic World exhibit, which is currently in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> this radio show is in Australia. And they also gave the Jurassic World exhibit a special thanks. 
Now in graphic novel comic book news, First Second, a company that publishes graphic novels, is launching a new line called Science Comics for Middle Grade Readers. The first graphic novel is Dinosaurs by M.K. Reed and Joe Flood and will include a history of paleontology and how our view of dinosaurs has changed over the last 150 years. One of the editors said, quote, We are trying with each book to find an entry point into each topic that is revealing about the scientific process and how people learn and how people know things, end quote. So that's a good way to get people more interested in science, and I'm really happy that their first graphic novel is about dinosaurs. Yeah, that's cool. I also just want to quickly mention Dakota via Facebook let us know about the comic Voracious. We had talked about it a little while ago, and Dakota has read the first couple of issues, and she says they're actually pretty great as a heads up. So definitely check that out if you're looking for a graphic novel. Just to remind you, this is the comic where a man goes back in time to hunt dinosaurs and brings them back to serve up his burgers at his restaurant. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, it is. Next, thanks to Sean, who also shared via Facebook, who's taking a course that we had mentioned on a previous episode. We've talked about the awesome Dino 101 course on Coursera before, and that's a free online class that teaches the basics of dinosaurs. And Dr. Phil Curry from the University of Alberta is offering additional courses now, including one called Paleontology, Theropod Dinosaurs, and the Origins of Birds. And it consists of five lessons and, quote, examines the anatomy, diversity, and evolution of theropod dinosaurs in relation to the origin of birds, end quote. That feels like that's a theme that's going around this year because we've got the American Museum of Natural History, with their latest exhibit, has to do with dinosaurs and birds and yeah. this class, and it's pretty cool. A good excuse to make feathered dinosaur models, too. Yeah. You get people more used to the idea. Yep. Next, BuzzFeed gives step-by-step -step instructions on how to make your own dinosaur soaps. According to the article, all you need are some plastic dinosaurs, clear glycerin soap, soap coloring, Easter eggs, small cups, a coffee stir stick, a small microwave-safe bowl, a microwave, and a masking tape, and voila! Doesn't sound like necessarily the easiest, but the pictures are pretty cute. <laughs> and you get to bathe with dinosaurs. I guess. <laughs> Dinosaur soap. Who doesn't want it? Next, thanks to Vince, who recommended this to us via Facebook. Facebook was very popular this week for us, so thanks guys. For kids interested in dinosaurs, check out National Geographic Kids' The Ultimate Dinopedia. According to the official description, quote, it includes every dinosaur ever discovered and highlights 125 species that scientists know sufficiently to describe in rich detail. I might have to check and see if it's actually every dinosaur ever discovered. I was just thinking, I don't know how often they update, but it could be a great start for kids. Yeah, even 125 is a lot. Yeah, it's true. Although they memorize all 700 of the Pokemon or whatever, so this is nothing by comparison. <laughs> Last, not really news, but we want to thank Vince, who told us via email, and Brendan, who told us via Facebook, that uh, a couple episodes back we were talking about the Ah-Cha-Cha <laughs> reference. And yes, we were. <laughs> we couldn't remember what the reference is from but it's from jimmy durant so thank you so much we knew somebody would know it and thank you for letting us know <laughs> yep so sabrina doesn't sound like a crazy person it's good well i knew it was a real reference <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't really believe you <laughs> anyway <laughs> thanks again vince and brendan 
This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Mapusaurus. And Mapusaurus was requested by Cole via Patreon, so thanks, Cole. Mapusaurus's name means earth lizard, and the type species is Mapusaurus rose, named after the rose-colored rocks where Mapusaurus was found, and for Rose Letwin, who sponsored the fossil excavation. Two in one. Yeah. Mapusaurus lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Argentina, and it was first discovered in 1995. It was excavated between 1997 to 2001 as part of the Argentinian-Canadian Dinosaur Project. Phil Curry and Rodolfo Coria described Mapusaurus in 2006. It was found in the Huincol Formation, which was an arid environment. The bone bed with Mapusaurus had at least seven individuals, all different ages, and this may be because it was a predator trap or because they lived together. The bone bed may have also been a result of the bones being carried downstream in a flood. No other dinosaurs were found in this bone bed, so who knows? Maybe Mampusaurus hunted in packs, but it's kind of unclear. Uh, other sites have been found with many carnivorous dinosaurs in Alberta and Mongolia and the U.S., which suggests in the Cretaceous maybe there was pack behavior. The smallest Mapusaurus individual found in the bone bed was 18 feet or 5.5 meters long. There were some as large as 33 feet or 10.2 meters long and weighing 3 tons. At some sources said even up to 8 tons. It was similar in size to Gigantosaurus, which is a close relative. Corey and Curry in 2006 said that they found larger femur bones similar in size to a Gigantosaurus that was 40 feet, 12.2 meters long, 
And in 2011, Drew Eddy and Julia Clark found a pubic shaft that was even larger than the Gigantosaurus. So they said Mapusaurus may have been as long as 41 feet, 12.6 meters, or even larger. So Mapusaurus may be the biggest carnivorous dinosaur found so far. Yeah, it's big. It is big. Its skull was 6 feet or 1.84 meters long. Again, it's similar to Gigantosaurus, but the skull was a little bit different. It was thicker, wider, flatter. Also lower and lighter than Gigantosaurus. Mapusaurus lived alongside Argentinosaurus and Cathartosaurus, as well as some Abliosauroids. It's unclear what Mapusaurus would have hunted if it hunted, instead of scavenge. An adult Argentinosaurus could weigh up to 100 tons and was 125 feet or 40 meters long, which would have been too large for Mapusaurus to hunt alone. We have said, though, that estimate might be a little bit big, just as a caveat. Yeah, could be. But still, it was large. So maybe Mapusaurus went after juvenile Argentinosaurus. Maybe they worked in groups to go after juveniles. Mapusaurus' teeth are similar to Gigantosaurus. They had flat, curved teeth with the serrated edge, which was good for slicing, compared to T-Rex, which, as Garrett said, was good for crunching bones because they were more conical. Mapusaurus may not have been able to bite through Argentinosaurus' bone, but as a pack, maybe they did multiple bites to Argentinosaurus so it would lose blood or get infected, and then they could go eat Argentinosaurus when it was weaker, couldn't defend itself as well. In 2013... PLOS One published a study called Paleopathological Survey of a Population of Mapusaurus, Theropoda carcarodontosauridae, from the late Cretaceous-Winkle Formation, Argentina. And in this paper, scientists studied all the Mapusaurus bones found in the bone bed and looked for diseases and trauma, known as paleoepidemiology. They found two broken and rehealed ribs, which shows that Mapusaurus led an active lifestyle, but had no real skeletal abnormalities so far. Studies of theropods show low numbers of abnormalities in general. Well, that's good, maybe. Yeah, but I don't know how many we've found in comparison to the population as a whole. That's true. And we talked about how a lot of times the first ones that are found, they don't even really look for abnormalities. So. Yep. Mapusaurus is a carcarodontosaurid, and carcarodontosaurid's name means shark-toothed lizards, and they were carnivorous theropods. Ernst Stromer named the family in 1931, and the family includes Gigantosaurus, Mapusaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, and Tyrannotitan, and they're all about the same size or larger than T-Rex. Carcharodontosaurids and Spinosaurids were the largest predators in Gondwana in the early and middle Cretaceous, and Mapusaurus is also part of the subfamily Gigantosaurine, which includes Carcharodontosaurids more closely related to Gigantosaurus and Mapusaurus than Carcharodontosaurus. Yeah, and a lot of people relate them to T-Rex, but they're really a totally different branch of the evolutionary tree. I mean, they're in theropods, but they're not tyrannosauroids, and they weren't as smart. And our fun fact of the day comes from lots of places. <laughs> I was trying to figure out some details about claws, and according to National Geographic, cassowaries and harpy eagles have the longest claws of any living birds, at about four to five inches long, which is pretty massive and scary. But those claws are actually two parts. There's a bone underneath, and then there's a sharp keratin covering that goes over the top of the bone, and that part's called the claw sheath. The claw sheaths rarely fossilize since they are made of keratin, so we are usually just left with the bone underneath the claw sheath. And you can tell that there was a claw sheath there because... On the claw bone, they'll have a surface that indicates there are a lot of blood vessels, and you have to supply a lot of blood to the claw sheath to keep it in good shape. 
So when you go to a museum, what you're actually seeing in the mounted skeleton is just the bone that was under the claw sheath, unless they add an extrapolated sheath or they have a rare fossilized sheath. So what you end up with is you're seeing a claw that's quite a bit smaller and more dull than the real claw would have been. So you can just imagine them growing by maybe a quarter to a third. Yeah. Also, if you have a house cat, you might have seen discarded claw sheaths all over the place and wondered why. It turns out that claw sheaths require a constant blood supply, like I mentioned, but they continue to grow outward anyway. And once they grow too far from the blood supply, they just shed and they leave a fresh, sharp claw underneath. So they're like constantly regenerating a new sharp claw all the time. I couldn't find a good study looking at multiple genera of claw evolution, so I can't be sure if dinosaurs did this or if they were more like dogs where their nails just kind of wear down over time and they don't shed part of them. Also, for the record, including sheaths, Therizinosaurus is the uncontested champion of claws with one meter or three foot long claws, including the sheaths. That's an estimate because they didn't find a full claw and I don't think they found a sheath either. That makes them about seven times longer than the biggest claws on an extant bird. Pretty crazy. I can't even imagine three foot claw. It's like as tall as a toddler. <laughs> yeah. Imagine the damage it could do. Yeah. It's like having a sword on your hand. So, well, actually, three swords. <laughs> Maybe more. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Again, if you like what you hear, you're a dinosaur enthusiast, you want to support us, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.